Chapters 12 and 13 of Book 1 of Les Miserables, Volume 5, by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ella Jane Quentin. Les Miserables, Volume 5, by Victor Hugo. Translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. Book 1. The War Between Four Walls. Chapter 12. Disorder, a Partisan of Order. Bossuet muttered in Combeferre's ear. He did not answer my question. "'He is a man who does good by gunshots,' said Combeferre. "'Those who have preserved some memory of this already distant epoch know that the National Guard from the suburbs was valiant against insurrections. It was particularly zealous and intrepid in the days of June, 1832. A certain good dram-shopkeeper of Pantin de Vertu, or La Cunette, whose establishment had been closed by the riots, became leonine at the sight of his deserted dance-hall, and got himself killed to preserve the order represented by a tea-garden. In that bourgeois and heroic time, in the presence of ideas which had their knights, interests had their paladins, the prosiness of the originators detracted nothing from the bravery of the movement. The diminution of a pile of crowns made bankers sing the Marseillaise, they shed their blood lyrically for the counting-house, and they defended the shop, that immense diminutive of the fatherland, with Lacedaemonian enthusiasm. At bottom, we will observe, there was nothing in all this that was not extremely serious. It was social elements entering into strife, while awaiting the day when they should enter into equilibrium. Another sign of the times was the anarchy mingled with governmentalism, the barbarous name of the correct party. People were for order, in combination with a lack of discipline. The drum suddenly beat capricious calls at the command of such or such a colonel of the National Guard, such and such a captain went into action through inspiration, such and such National Guardsmen fought for an idea, and on their own account. At critical moments, on days, they took counsel less of their leaders than of their instincts. There existed in the army of order veritable guerrillos, some of the sword, like Fanico, others of the pen, like Henri Fonfred. Civilization, unfortunately, represented at this epoch rather by an aggregation of interests than by a group of principles, was, or thought itself, in peril. It set up the cry of alarm, each constituting himself a centre, defended it, succoured it, and protected it with his own head, and the first comer took it upon himself to save society. Zeal sometimes proceeded to extermination— a platoon of the National Guard would constitute itself on its own authority a private council of war, and judge and execute a captured insurgent in five minutes. It was an improvisation of this sort that had slain Jean Prouvaire. Fierce lynch law, with which no one party had any right to reproach the rest, for it has been applied by the Republic in America, as well as by the monarchy in Europe. This lynch law was complicated with mistakes— on one day of riding, a young poet named Paul M. Garnier was pursued in the Place Royale with a bayonet at his loins, and only escaped by taking refuge under the porte-cochere of number six. They shouted, "'There's another of those Saint-Simonians,' and they wanted to kill him. Now he had under his arm a volume of the memoirs of the Duc de Saint-Simon. A National Guard had read the words Saint-Simon on the book, and had shouted, "'Death!' On the 6th of June, 1832, a company of the National Guards from the suburbs, commanded by the Captain Fanico, above mentioned, had itself decimated in the Rue de la Chanvrerie 
out of caprice and its own good pleasure. This fact, singular though it may seem, was proved at the judicial investigation opened in consequence of the insurrection of 1832. Captain Fanico, a bold and impatient bourgeois, a sort of condottiere of the order of those whom we have just characterized, a fanatical and intractable governmentalist, could not resist the temptation to fire prematurely, and the ambition of capturing the barricade alone and unaided, that is to say, with his company, exasperated by the successive apparition of the red flag and the old coat which he took for the black flag, he loudly blamed the generals and chiefs of the corps, who were holding council and did not think that the moment for decisive assault had arrived, and who were allowing the insurrection to fry in its own fat, to use the celebrated expression of one of them. For his part he thought the barricade ripe, and as that which is ripe ought to fall, he made the attempt. He commanded men as resolute as himself, raging fellows, as a witness said. His company, the same which had shot Jean Prouvaire the poet, was the first of the battalion posted at the angle of the street. At the moment they were least expecting it, the captain launched his men against the barricade. This movement, executed with more goodwill than strategy, cost the Fanico company dear. Before it had traversed two-thirds of the street, it was received by a general discharge from the barricade. Four, the most audacious, who were running on in front, were mown down point-blank at the very foot of the redoubt, and this courageous throng of National Guards, very brave men but lacking in military tenacity, were forced to fall back, after some hesitation, leaving fifteen corpses on the pavement. This momentary hesitation gave the insurgents time to reload their weapons, and a second and very destructive discharge struck the company before it could regain the corner of the street, its shelter. A moment more, and it was caught between two fires, and it received the volley from the battery piece, which, not having received the order, had not discontinued its firing. The intrepid and imprudent Fanico was one of the dead from this grape-shot. He was killed by the cannon, that is to say, by order. This attack, which was more furious than serious, irritated Enjolras. The fool, said he. They are getting their own men killed, and they are using up our ammunition for nothing. Enjolras spoke like the real general of the insurrection, which he was. Insurrection and repression do not fight with equal weapons. Insurrection, which is speedily exhausted, has only a certain number of shots to fire and a certain number of combatants to expend. An empty cartridge box, a man killed, cannot be replaced. As repression has the army, it does not count its men and as it has Vincennes, it does not count its shots. Repression has as many regiments as the barricade has men, and as many arsenals as the barricade has cartridge boxes. Thus they are struggles of one against a hundred, which always end in crushing the barricade, unless the revolution, uprising suddenly, flings into the balance its flaming archangel's sword. This does happen sometimes, then everything rises, the pavements begin to seethe, popular redoubts abound, Paris quivers supremely, the quid divinum is given forth, a tenth of August is in the air, a twenty-ninth of July is in the air, a wonderful light appears, the yawning maw of force draws back, and the army, that lion, sees before it, erect and tranquil, that prophet, France. Chapter 13 passing gleams. In the chaos of sentiments and passions which defend a barricade, there is a little of everything. There is bravery, 
there is youth, honor, enthusiasm, the ideal, conviction, the rage of the gambler, and, above all, intermittences of hope. One of these intermittences, one of these vague quivers of hope, suddenly traversed the barricade of the Rue de la Chanvrerie at the moment when it was least expected. Listen, suddenly cried Enjolras, who was still on the watch. It seems to me that Paris is waking up. It is certain that, on the morning of the 6th of June, the insurrection broke out afresh for an hour or two, to a certain extent. The obstinacy of the alarm peal of Saint-Marie reanimated some fancies. Barricades were begun in the Rue du Poirier and the Rue des Graviers. In front of the Porte Saint-Martin, a young man, armed with a rifle, attacked alone a squadron of cavalry. In plain sight, on the open boulevard, he placed one knee on the ground, shouldered his weapon, fired, killed the commander of the squadron, and turned away, saying, "'There's another who will do us no more harm.' He was put to the sword. In the Rue Saint-Denis, a woman fired on the National Guard from behind a lowered blind. The slats of the blind could be seen to tremble at every shot. A child fourteen years of age was arrested in the Rue de la Cossonnerie, with his pockets full of cartridges. Many posts were attacked. At the entrance to the Rue Bertin Poiret, a very lively and utterly unexpected fusillade welcomed a regiment of cuirassiers, at whose head marched Marshal General Cavagnon de Barac. In the Rue Planche-Mibray, they threw old pieces of pottery and household utensils down on the soldiers from the roofs. A bad sign, and when this matter was reported to Marshal Sou, Napoleon's old lieutenant grew thoughtful, as he recalled Suchet's saying at Saragossa, "'We are lost when the old women empty their pot de chambre on our heads.'" These general symptoms, which presented themselves at the moment when it was thought that the uprising had been rendered local, this fever of wrath these sparks which flew hither and thither above those deep masses of combustibles which are called the Faubourg of Paris, all this taken together disturbed the military chiefs. They made haste to stamp out these beginnings of conflagration. They delayed the attack on the barricades Maubet, de la Chauvier, and Saint-Marie until these sparks had been extinguished, in order that they might have to deal with the barricades only, and be able to finish them at one blow. Columns were thrown into the streets where there was fermentation, sweeping the large, sounding the small right and left, now slowly and cautiously, now at full charge. The troops broke in the doors of houses whence shots had been fired. At the same time, maneuvers by the cavalry dispersed the groups on the boulevards. This repression was not effected without some commotion, and without that tumultuous uproar peculiar to collisions between the army and the people. This is what Enjolras had caught up in the intervals of the cannonade and the musketry. Moreover, he had seen wounded men passing the end of the street in litters, and he said to Corfeyrac, "'These wounded do not come from us.' Their hope did not last long. The gleam was quickly eclipsed. In less than half an hour, what was in the air vanished. It was a flash of lightning, unaccompanied by thunder, and the insurgents felt that sort of leaden cope, with the indifference of the people casts over obstinate and deserted men, fall over them once more." The general movement, which seemed to have assumed a vague outline, had miscarried, and the attention of the Minister of War and the strategy of the generals could now be concentrated on the three or four barricades which still remained standing. The sun was mounting above the horizon. An insurgent hailed Enjolras. "'We are hungry here. Are we really going to die like this, without anything to eat?' Enjolras, who was still leaning on his elbows at his embrasure, made an affirmative sign with his head, 
but without taking his eyes from the end of the street. End of Book One, Chapter 13